0: Welcome to The Human Beat. I am Roger Rockett. Congresswoman Suzanne Bonamici recently hosted a discussion at the Barbie Maritime Center in Astoria about our oceans and climate change, featuring scientists from Oregon State University and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. What follows is highlights of that discussion, edited for time. Congresswoman Bonamici speaks first. This is an important topic that we're here to discuss today and you're here because you care about this and you want to learn more Uh, and and that's why we have these great experts with us today too. So how climate change is affecting our ocean and our estuaries uh, is something that really matters to the people who live here. It affects uh, the species that live here, it affects our economy, and it's really critical to the health of our communities and the health of our planet. Now, when you, if you look at a picture of the Earth from out in space, it looks pretty blue, right? Because most of the planet is covered by ocean. So ocean health is very, very critical. Um, and the ocean plays a, uh, an important role in regulating climate, because it buffers uh, the harmful effects of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, but that has consequences, um, and our ocean is resilient. Uh, but at risk because we, the sort of collected, collective we in the United States and around the world, we have not taken the bold action that we need to take to address the climate crisis. So I'm really excited to hear from our panelists who are here today. Um, I find that the more people learn, and under, <laughs> learn about and understand what's happening with climate change and issues like Uh, algal blooms, hypoxia, ocean acidification, the more they want to participate in finding solutions. So we're going to hear from some great panelists and then we're going to open it up to your questions and to discussion. We have three with us today. First, Professor Maria Kavanaugh of Oregon State University. She uses high-tech imaging tools to study phytoplankton as indicators of ocean health. Then we're going to hear from Professor George Walbusser of Oregon State University. Uh, so <laughs> Professor Walbusser came to Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago and did a great uh, presentation explaining how his research uh, and science helped uh, with the uh, shellfish industry. And finally, Lori Whitecamp with the NOAA Fisheries Research Bio- is a NOAA fisheries research biologist who studies salmon survival in estuaries and marine environments and we know how important that is to our communities uh, and to our culture. So we're going to hear from our panelists first and then we're going to open it up to questions and so Professor Kavanaugh. Thank
1: you. Thank you everyone and thank you Congressman and the staff for inviting me out here today. I'm very happy to see the Columbia River right outside the window here. So I'm just gonna give you a little background about myself. I actually grew up a little bit upstream, I mean by way upstream going up the Columbia River into the snake and into Malheur County. And so it's very nice to be kind of down to my home home ocean. Um, I'm a pelagic seascape ecologist, which means I study the interactions between organisms and their habitats. Um, I use a lot of um, uh, earth orbiting satellites in my um, research. And part of what I do is um, take a holistic view of the ocean and classify open ocean habitats that move and expand and contract and, uh, just like the ocean does. And then I take a really a focused in view too and I use some in situ, um, some uh, uh, instruments that we put in the water that actually sit the water drop by drop and we're able to actually image individual microscopic organisms. And we get these beautiful mosaics of phytoplankton that we are now able to see the species level information where we haven't been able to do that before. So why do I care about phytoplankton, Maybe, um, and why maybe should you if you don't? I think you probably do already. Um, Phytoplankton are these microscopic photosynthetic organisms, um, and they are the base of the oceanic food web. So that means they're feeding um, all of the rich fisheries on our coast, and ultimately our economies and our culture. We're um, really important for carbon. Because they photosynthesize, they're really important for uh, both carbon and oxygen fluxes. Um, they take in CO2 um, and um, spit out oxygen, and then during the decomposition uh, process, they actually return that, uh, the CO2 to the um, ocean water. Um, and so George will be talking a little bit about ocean acidification. So they play a critical role in that, in both the positive and the negative um, uh, inputs into uh, ocean acidification. And then, as the uh, uh, Congresswoman was uh, speaking previously, um, some species are toxic, and so they form um, uh, toxins when they're stressed or when they bloom that are harmful for human health. What we know with uh, climate change is that these blooms, these red, these high biomass uh, phytoplankton, shown here from this um, this satellite imagery, is uh, that we know that the frequency, the location, and the magnitude of these blooms are going to change, as well as who is there, the composition, whether these are going to be toxic or beneficial. So the bad and the good. So let's talk about the good first. So some phytoplankton, of course, when they bloom up, are really beneficial for ocean ecosystems. And uh, it's really important for us to understand whether or not the community, the the assemblage that's blooming up, are actually going to feed um, our fisheries. Some of the work that's coming out of the uh, Northwest Fisheries Science Center, um, so the Cooperative Institute for Marine Resource um, Studies at Hatfield Marine Science Center, have found that specific types of <coughs> diatoms shown here actually result in fatter copepods, which are these zooplankton sh- r- shown right here. And these fat copepods um, are great indicators of uh, both chinook and um, coho salmon returns. So if we see these, um, these types of phytoplankton in the ocean, two years later it is likely or more likely that we'll have good salmon runs. Now the bad. So um, we are also on our coast seeing an inc- what we think it might be an increased incidence of, of the harmful algal blooms. And specifically, what we do see is an increased incidence of this, um, this naturally occurring uh, diatom called pseudonychia, and pseudonychia um, will, when it blooms sometimes, <coughs> will, uh, will release domoic acid, and that is a toxin that actually affects our nervous system, and it can, um, other toxins can affect your liver. Um, but what we do know is that warm conditions and potentially um, increase in aci- uh, acidic con- uh, conditions can promote the growth of these phytoplankton, but not only the growth, but their in- um, the increased toxin levels. Some of these phytoplankton uh, or these species aren't always toxic, but when they are toxic, it is important to know what drives that toxin release. Um, and what we do know also is that from um, some sa- some studies done on the, our Oregon coast is that the severity of this most recent bloom in 2015 that resulted in coastwide closures of shellfish um, harvest um, was re- linked to changes in ocean circulation um, that was also associated with increased warming. So we think that that might be a kind of a harbinger for climate change um, in, uh, or the conditions associated with climate change in the future. Now, the reality, so our phytoplankton monitoring of of species levels, so now we're talking about the who again, it's relatively limited. We have two, um, one federal agency, NOAA, and um, one state agency, Oregon Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, that are regularly taking samples um, in our coastal waters to monitor the presence or absence of these species. Um, the ones uh, the, or- the ODF and W group are sampling along eight different beaches along our shores once or twice a, a-, a month, and then we also have um, samples that are taken offshore by this uh, the Newport hydrological uh, line, which is a NOAA effort, and that happens every two weeks or so. But what we're doing now is we're combining um, kind of kind of combining forces, and so this is kind of our our vision and hope for the future is that. We can, um, with with collaboration and using some of the NASA assets as well, and some of our technological um, capacity that we have at Oregon State, we can expand our coverage of (coughs) monitoring phytoplankton at the coast. Offshore, we have smaller diatoms that don't really, or smaller dinoflagellates that don't really feed salmon communities. Near shore, we have a couple of different diatoms and one here in the Columbia River Plume that actually is kind of like a cheeseburger for, for copepods. And so we really think if we can actually identify these, these, di- these diatoms or these species that really feed the, um, the, the system, um, and we can do this from space, um, then that will be of a benefit. We know that our future climate conditions, uh, we're going to see changes in the magnitude, location, and frequency, but also the composition, the species that are present in in phytoplankton blooms. We're working towards coordinated monitoring, but also coordinated science so that we start to understand the why. Why is this happening? What's going on with the climate change? How are these multiple stressors that we'll hear about today interacting? One of the cool things that's happening out of the Northwest Fisheries Science Center is that they're using the observations from the Oregon Department of Fisheries and Wildlife and they're feeding them into a forecast model so that we can see where these harmful algal blooms are actually um, drifting down the coast.
2: Okay, so first, uh, I've given enough public talks about ocean acidification to know that nobody likes chemistry. So, (laughs) here are the cliff notes. So this is, this is our, our, our global CO2 emissions of gigatons of carbon per year over time, and you'll see this and we've seen that, I'm sure many of you have seen this sort of thing before. And Does anybody know why, how we know that number, because these things often come up. Well, how do you know it's really fossil fuel emission? People make a lot, was that what you going to say? Radioisotope. That's one way. We, we have some really complicated scientific ways that can actually do these really nice studies. But actually some of the best data we have is from oil companies. Uh All this stuff is traded on the market, we know how much is traded, we know how much is sold and and used. And so actually in all of our scientific measurements coincide very cleanly with this. So so we know this number very well, we know it's fossil fuel emissions, and then there's some aspect that uh, deforestation and other things. So the consequence of this (coughs) is this thing we call ocean acidification. Many of you have heard of pH, either if you have a pool or a hot tub or or a general chemistry class in high school. That's essentially what's one of the aspects of the ocean that's changing is the pH. And when uh, Dr. Richard Feely, who's sort of one of the the godfathers of ocean acidification research, first proposed that our carbon emissions were gonna change the chemistry of the ocean, the entire scientific community sort of laughed at him and said there is no way, how could we change the entire ocean? Well, so there's measurements now that clearly show this. Now the pH is is just part of the story here. The CO2 goes up, so here are the cliff notes. The pH goes down, and I'm going to talk about the saturation state thing. That goes down quite a bit. The way you can think about this is if you take a glass of water and you put it, or your coffee in the morning, and you put a teaspoon of sugar and it dissolves. So then you could say, if you wanted to be really chemistry-minded, you could say, my coffee is under-saturated with respect to sugar. You take another (laughs) teaspoon, your coffee is still under-saturated with respect to sugar at some point you've added enough sugar it won't dissolve anymore your coffee is now saturated with sugar and it's probably not good <laughs> right um, and so the oceans and so we talk about this in terms of minerals generally for ocean chemistry organisms that we that I study a lot uh, about make their shells out of calcium carbonate the oceans are super saturated with respect to calcium carbonate and what's happening is this decline in pH and this increase in CO2, what it's doing is, is lowering the saturation state as well. And so some of the research that we've done eight, nine years ago now almost shows that essentially this decrease in saturation state makes it harder for some things to make shells. It doesn't make it impossible, it means that they need to spend more energy to make their shells and they have less energy for other stuff. Okay, so uh, right now the increase in CO2 that we see is the fastest that anybody can sort of measure or by proxy know in the last 66 million years. That was when the dinosaurs would extinct, was 65 million years ago. So this is, we've hit the highest in human history, but the rate of change is actually the bigger problem for for ocean chemistry. Climate change is still really important in terms of the absolute amount. We often say that Oregon coast is a hot spot. um, What that basically means is that we actually, all the great fisheries we have here, and all the great productivity that comes out of our fisheries and this great fishing fleet is fueled by upwelling. So that's deep water in the ocean that gets brought up to the surface and that water has high CO2 but it also has all the nutrients that feed the phytoplankton that Maria is talking about. So there's a background level of CO2 that's a little bit higher to begin with and what happens is that additional CO2 makes those conditions worse and I'll show you some work a student of mine did recently to show how that background CO2 ultimately amplifies the variation so we can talk about it as extreme events in weather chemistry in a sense extreme events in chemistry weather okay and then the take home here that uh, when I started doing this work everybody said well estuaries aren't going to matter they're so dynamic everything's perfectly adapted in those systems a little bit of change isn't going to matter And that's the same exact argument we've heard time and again. And these are really well-educated colleagues that I've respected, but it's the same argument as saying, well, what is this little background change in temperature going to make a difference if our temperature changes 20 degrees each day from day to night, right? So um, I'll show you some examples of that. Okay. And uh, in terms of this being a hotspot, The Whiskey Creek Shellfish Hatchery, which is down the road in Etarts Bay, uh, has really been ground zero for ocean acidification research in many ways, in terms of adapting to ocean acidification. Uh, I'll mention it briefly, but the story is essentially uh, that about 2007, they started having unprecedented failures. And these are, and I've heard, I've heard people go, well, maybe they don't know what they're doing there. These are people who've been growing oysters for 30 years and had never seen anything like this before. And ultimately what happened was a colleague of mine, Dr. Burkals, who's a carbonate chemist, or a marine chemist, lent them an instrument to put into the hatchery that they could measure and see what's happening real time with the chemistry. And lo and behold, what happened was when the chemistry was bad or the CO2 was high, they had bad production. And when it was good, it was good production. So what they actually did at first was simply wait till the afternoon to fill the tanks with water. Because then all day the phytoplankton and the seagrasses have been absorbing the CO2 and the, and the conditions are really good. What we know now is, and we've worked with the hatchery extensively, we basically, we call it the Tums approach. So we're putting in antacid in, this, in all the seawater coming into the hatchery and that has largely fixed the problem. Um, and they, the production is back and the shellfish industry is doing great. We have a project now that we have partnered with uh, Oregon Fish and Wildlife, uh, Oregon Pink Shrimp. How many people have had Oregon Pink Shrimp? Do you guys know that it was the first certified sustainable fishery in the country by the Marine Stewardship Council? And it's managed by the state. The state does an amazing job managing this fishery. Um, and And they continue to, and they continue to improve this. They're just recertified last year, right? And so this is just a picture of a haul from uh, one of the shrimp boats <coughs> and the bycatch. That's the extent of the bycatch is right there with all that shrimp. And it's because they've, they've done a number of things with the nets and lights and other things as excluders. But there's been a question of, are they gonna be sensitive to this problem of ocean acidification as well? So just to put a finer point on this, these are the uh, landings of value of the fishery over time. You'll see for the state of Oregon, had an El Nino year here but it's about 20 to 25 million dollars per year landings in fisheries so it's a big fishery for the state it's usually right behind Dungeness crab in terms of total value we're studying larval shrimp so these are the larvae of the shrimp they have about a two month to three month period where they're in the water column swimming around and so they go through a number of stages and what we've done last year and we just finished the experiment this year last year we ran number of uh, ph levels or co2 levels and measured how the shrimp grew and this year we did that along with multiple temperature levels to see if there's a combined effect which we expect will happen and this is basically what we found from last year Um, this is the growth rate now we're using this as millimeters per stage there's 13 stages in the larvae and so what you see is that at lower ph about 77 Uh, up to this about uh, 8.0, a little bit above, it ends up creating about a 17% decrease in the growth rate. What that means to the population of the fishery, we don't know. I'm not gonna say that they're all gonna die. We don't know that. We don't know, all we know is they grow slower. Many times things at these stages can grow faster later, but we're working on trying to understand and follow them a bit longer to see that wrap it up and say we're using our best natural science data and some really smart economists and social scientists trying to find pathways for climate change adaptation because you hear all this and it sounds all doom and gloom and there's nothing we can do there's a lot of exposure things happening but we're we are fairly in uh, a high level of ingenuity in terms of responding to stuff and so if we start now trying to understand what pathways and what things we can do like we did with the oyster industry Almost a decade ago now, we can sort of hopefully offset or do things to help uh, us continue to enjoy the marine resources that we all do.
0: Okay, next we're going to hear finally and last but not least from Lori Whitecamp from NOAA Fisheries Research. Uh, She's a biologist who studies salmon survival in estuaries and marine environments. Thanks, Lori. uh, So I've been involved in several different assessments of uh,
3: effects of climate change on salmon, and what I'd like to do is just quickly summarize the findings of those. And although they're directed at salmon, they really apply to other fish that are out in the ocean, that are in our estuaries, et cetera, and, and really hit on four aspects of climate change that we think are important to salmon in estuarine and ocean environments, which are namely increasing temperature, sea level rise, upwelling and acidification. I have to thank George for a fantastic intro to the topic. As far as increasing temperature goes, fish are cold-blooded. So their metabolic rate is determined by the temperature of the water that they are in. Salmon and most of our other species that are out here are also a cold water species. They don't like it when it gets warm. If you can imagine yourself in Las Vegas today, in 110, you kind of get the sense (laughs) And in fact, temperatures over 65, 70 degrees are lethal to most of our salmon stocks. So as temperatures go up, they're gonna get physiological stress that's gonna cause increased disease resistance, uh, or susceptibility, excuse me. Um, And then we also think that they're not gonna grow as well because they're gonna be spending a lot more energy trying to just maintain body function because their metabolic rate is higher and have less opportunity to grow quickly We also think that there are probably going to be some pretty significant indirect effects of temperature on salmon in that we're going to get all these migrants moving north. And we certainly saw that during the blob in 2015, where we had billfish off Oregon. I guess there was an Opa caught out here, tunas up in Alaska, sea snakes in California. We know it happens when it gets warm. And on average, fish seem to move about 30 to 130 kilometers (coughs) a decade. That's what we've been seeing over time, as our oceans are slowly getting warmer. Uh, And we also get some surprises that occur when you have these migrations. Who had ever seen a pyrosome or knew what one was in 2015? I did not. It's not anywhere. This is a subtropical species that just exploded. These are these sea cucumbers that you're seeing on our beaches. Uh, One of the themes here is that biological systems are incredibly difficult to predict. Um, And as we're getting these differences and changes in species as things are getting warmer the whole ecosystem is really going to change in ways that we don't understand and we're not sure how salmon are going to respond to this new uh, ecosystem. Are the prey that they like going to be here in the same quantities, uh, new competitors, new predators, etc sea level rise is mainly important in estuaries because it doesn't really matter whether you have a meter or two higher out in the middle of the ocean it really matters in here and there's really two things that are going on one is we're going to get increased ocean inundation right as the sea level goes up more ocean water is going to be able to come in at the same time we know that our stream flow that's coming down estuaries are where the ocean and the stream meet. oh thank you very much good catch um, So we expect that the rivers are going to be higher in the winter because there's going to be less snow pack, it's more rain, and they're going to be lower in the summer because we won't have that snow pack that slowly melts all spring long. So we're going to get differences in circulation and temperature and salinity in our estuaries as sea level rises. Another concern with sea level rise is whether the vegetation, the eelgrass beds that George was talking about, the tidal marsh habitat that you see just upstream of here, is it going to be able to keep up with that sea level rise? Uh, These habitats are incredibly important, as George pointed out. The oysters grow great in them. We think the tidal marsh habitat produces a lot of prey that salmon are eating as they're swimming downstream or occupying those areas. And so it's whether they can kind of keep up with the level of sea level rise and one of the big concerns is that most of our estuaries are diked and they have shoreline protection and it really prevents things moving uphill, these aquatic plants moving uphill. So they, they really won't be able to uh, expand. So that's, that's a big concern. Um, upwelling is what happens on really windy days, perhaps a little bit more windy than today, and it drives our ocean productivity, why our coast is so incredibly productive. So, We get these northerly winds that are caused by a difference in pressure offshore versus inshore. causes the northerly winds. It pushes through the Coriolis effect, pushes water offshore, and you get this cold, very nutrient but also uh, low oxygen and high acidic water being brought up that has lots of nutrients in it. And the problem is the climate models do not resolve that very well. What will happen in the future with upwelling? So a series of models, because it's it's fairly subtle. slight pressure differences between onshore and offshore that causes the winds, that causes the upwelling. So a whole series of models have shown very little impact we will have upwelling just like we normally do, which is predictable. So we know that at certain times of year it starts and then it ends. That's a certain strength. Other models have shown that there's going to be a delay in upwelling. And when it does happen, it's going to blow like stink. And it'll be very, very strong. And that's exactly what we saw in 2005 when upwelling, normally it starts in April or May around here. It didn't start until July, and it was catastrophic. There were seabird die-offs, marine mammals, pups were suffering. Uh, that caused the closure of the Chinook <clears throat> fishery from Till- Tillamook Bay all the way to California because Central Valley Chinook that went to the ocean in 2005 did not survive because of the upwelling was delayed. And so 2007 and 8, when they would have returned as adults, there weren't any fish there, so they closed the fishery down. So we've got examples of what it looks like. Uh, it's not good. And hopefully the uh, climate models, the new generation will be able to resolve this a little bit better. And then finally, ocean acidification. Um, as uh, George mentioned, it really has the biggest effect on things that have calcium carbonate shells. There's a a uh, group of organisms out in the ocean called pteropods. These are marine mollusks. They kind of look like, like sea butterflies. Uh, salmon eat them. Not in huge numbers, certainly not Chinook and Coho, but certainly uh, Chum and Sockeye and Pink Salmon eat a lot of pteropods. Uh, we don't think they're going to do very well. and other crustaceans, we also think their impact uh, will likely be impacted by ocean acidification. We really don't think that the direct effects of the acidification on salmon and other fish is going to be very big, because if you look at them, they have scales, they have a good layer of slime, they're really well armored. Uh, Perhaps it might affect olfaction in salmon, there's a little bit of evidence for that, but generally we think that they're pretty robust to Acidification, but it's the food web again—the lower layers of the food web and the phytoplankton—that uh, we really don't understand. We think, it, I mean, if they can't understand a single species, how are you going to be able to predict what the whole ecosystem is going to do? And salmon depend on that ecosystem; they depend on the lower layers. Um, so, in conclusion, we think the physical impacts of climate change on our oceans and our estuaries are fairly well understood, but the biological are, uh, impacts are less predictable, and there's going to be continue to be, I think, more surprises. Uh, The physiological response to warming temperatures is pretty straightforward, but this reorganization of food webs and these species that show up out of nowhere. Uh, How many of you were here in 2009 when the Humboldt squid were here, right? Uh, Where were they in any of our food webs? Uh, So we shall see what happens.
0: We've been listening to a discussion of our oceans and climate change, hosted by Congresswoman Suzanne Bonamici at the Barbie Center in Astoria. This is The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocca. Thanks for joining us.